Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance, episode 116. And in this episode, we'll discuss the concept of savings rates versus investment returns. Which is more important and why? It's actually a very common question that I get, and it's also a very common question that's asked online as well. In this episode, we'll go into some sub-concepts associating with savings rates and investment returns. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. The first aim is to be educated about personal finance and its basic concepts. To be educated means you can be financially literate, and that leads to the second aim. That is to be empowered with the knowledge that you have so that when you go and take it to your credentialed advisor or accountant, you can speak at a level that you can understand in. The third aim is to be entertained. Just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make after listening to one of my episodes back to your credentialed financial advisors. But if you're stuck on what to do in terms of broad principles, here are some simple steps to get you on the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Take at least 20% of after-tax income and put it aside. That's your money because you're the most important person in your life. Step two is invest that money, ideally into something you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand the stock market and index funds, so I just invest in index funds. Step three is reinvest dividends. The power of compounding over the long term is real. And step four, do it for the long term. Now, I'm not talking five 10 or even 15 years. I'm talking 20, 30, if not 40 plus years. Of course, the longer you do it, the better it is for you, which means the earlier you start, the better it is for you. And step five, my favorite, is to automate every step as much as you possibly can. Automating your investments forever means you're less likely to forget about it and you're more likely to just follow the plan. If you do these five simple steps over the long term, you're more likely to have more money than you'll ever need. Remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. Now, before we get to the main topic of savings rate versus investment returns, I had a question from P who asks, Hi Dev, thanks for your podcast. I've learned so much from them and they're ideal to drive time and gym time learning. I'm a radiologist and have a sizable amount of my savings, about a million dollars. I don't own a home. My savings rate is over 70%. I have no dependents, no debts, and no investments. In 2020, an advice from family members, I shorted the market in March and unfortunately have lost a lot of money as the market never declined further and kept rising. I'm now out of that investment, thankfully. My losses were in excess of $200,000. I guess I learned a very valuable lesson. 
What would you do with a million dollars in savings? Thanks for your question, P. And wow, that is an incredible story of A, incredible savings rate. So congratulations on that. Try to save over 70% is quite an achievement. And B, but also losing a lot of that money in 2020 due to shorting the market. To be honest, I did not anticipate the market to rise so quickly after March 2020, but here we are. I was actually hoping it would stay low for another few more years to capitalise on an investing strategy called dollar cost averaging. I've discussed this in episode 16 if you're interested. So what would Devraga do with a million dollars? Well, I happen to have discussed this question with the doctor itself, and they're not keen on properties, and their question directly involves investing in the stock market. So when investing in the stock market, you have various options. You can invest in individual companies uh, or individual stocks, which I don't generally recommend putting all of your eggs into one basket. You could then invest in well-diversified ETFs or index funds or managed funds, which is basically passive investing and pick a low-cost fund and put money into it and just invest regularly. That's the other option. You could also invest in something called LICs or listed investment companies. Now, refer to episode 36 where I discuss that in detail. But basically, there are companies out there in Australia who have their stocks listed and they take your money and invest it. It's a form of active investing, but rather than you doing it, they're doing it for it for you. And usually they do it at a very low cost. But before you do anything, you need to learn about various strategies of investing And even before that, you need to make sure you have an emergency fund. So you've got to have at least a thousand bucks set aside, which of course, a million dollars is a big, big sort of fund. So you've got enough money to do that. And you've got to have about three to 12 months of expenses or income set aside. I prefer income. And this money is not investment money. So out of the million bucks, you've got to make sure you have these two emergency funds sorted out. Now, there are two main options of how you may want to think about investing your million dollars, less emergency fund expenses. The first main method that most people tend to do is called dollar cost averaging. This means you divide the million bucks into multiple small parcels, let's say 50,000 each, and invest it at defined moments, let's say monthly. And this means after 20 months, you would have invested all of your initial money. The other option is just plowing $1 million and invest it from day one. And this is called lump sum investing. Now the stats are very clear. If you're investing for the long term over 30 plus years, lump sum investing is likely to produce a better result about 60 to 70% of the time. That doesn't mean lump sum investing is the best method to invest. The best method to invest is what you're comfortable with. The reality is most of us don't have a cool million bucks laying around. So we rarely have to make such difficult decisions. Most of us invest at regular intervals and do it for the long term and put a small parcel of money each time. In fact, this is how super contributions actually works and we all do it. Whatever you do, learn about what you're going to invest in. If you don't know where to start, then make sure you keep fees low, talk to a financial expert who's a teacher and not someone who sells you products. And whatever you do, just don't sit on the cash in your bank account. Now you've done really well by saving 70% of your income and having a huge amount of money sitting in the bank account. But I can tell you having money sitting in the bank account is a 100% way of losing money over the long term, thanks to inflation. Every year, your money is losing value by at least 2% thanks to inflation. 
If you want to learn more about inflation as a concept, refer to episode 27. Now to the main topic, and it kind of relates to P's question, that is savings rate or investment returns. Now, Dr. B has an excellent savings rate. 70% or more is fantastic and highly commendable, and it's not something that everyone can achieve. So does this mean investment returns don't actually matter? Now, the simple answer is your savings rate is far more important than your investment returns because the savings rate is something you need to get right from day one because the returns of investments from a 0% savings rate is still zero. The investment returns is a bit more important when you actually build your wealth. Let's dig a little deeper into these concepts. I'll talk about a 20% of after-tax pay-yourself money. What does that mean? That is what I recommend as a minimum savings rate. If you can beat that, like Dr. P has, then that's great. But you need to set aside at least 20% of after-tax income. Now, the definition of savings rate is measurement of the amount of money expressed as a percentage or ratio that a person deducts from the disposable income to set aside for their retirement. Remember, we're talking long-term, hence the word retirement. I'm not talking about a three to 10 year time frame. Long term for me is at least 20 years plus. Another simple way of explaining savings rate is your ability to forego current consumption in order to preserve future consumption. Let's use an example to highlight the concept of savings rate. Amy earns $1,000 per week after tax. She saves $300 of that. Therefore, her after-tax savings rate is 300 divided by 1,000, which is 30%. That's quite simple. In addition to savings rate, we need to learn about another sub-concept in this domain called marginal propensity to save. This is a proportion of aggregate pay rise that a person saves rather than spends. In other words, the marginal propensity to save is a proportion of each added dollar of income that is saved rather than spent. So the short note of this is MPS. Let's use an example to highlight this concept. Suppose Amy earns $1,000 per week after tax and saves $300 of that income. Her savings rate is 30%. During the end of financial year, Amy receives a bonus of $1,000 as a lump sum after tax. She saves $200 of that bonus. So her MPS, that is a marginal propensity to save ratio, is 20%. The inverse of this is also called the marginal propensity to consume, which in her case is 80%. That is, Amy will be or has spent $800 out of the bonus of $1,000. Now, when I say pay yourself 20% of after-tax income, what I'm really saying is save 20% of your disposable income, where your disposable income is a fancy way of saving after-tax income. It's all the same. I know a couple of people have been confused by the term disposable income. Disposable income is after-tax income at your disposal to use. So I hope you got that concept, that is the savings rate versus the marginal propensity to save. Now, I want to introduce one more concept called time preference because I like geeky stuff. Now, time preference is basically saying how much a person prefers to spend today than tomorrow. So a person who spends money today, rather than saving money for tomorrow, is said to have a higher time preference. In other words, the higher a a person's time preference, beg your pardon, the lower their savings rate is going to be. 
The reality for me is I pay myself at least 20% of after-tax income, my time preference is quite low, and my marginal propensity to save is sometimes up to 100%. I tend to save as much as I can and invest as much as I can. So what influences savings rates? There are a number of things that influences a person's ability to save. Number one is their income stability. Number two is, is there a recession going on at the time? Number three is, is there an economic shock at the time? So a COVID pandemic is a great example in 2020 of an economic shock that tore through the entire world, including Australia. Number four is the gross domestic product of a nation. The higher the GDP, the more savings rates of its citizens. That's interesting. Number five is higher income. A higher savings rate generally derives from a higher income because less of a percentage of their income is spent on essentials and necessities. Because your essentials and necessities necessities per person is going to be the same regardless of your income. So, you know, if you're a person that earns half a million dollars versus $50,000 a year, you're still going to need to have breakfast, you're still going to need to have lunch, you're still going to need to have dinner, you're still going to have to go to the toilet, need toilet paper, all the bare essentials. You're not going to be spending significant proportions of your income for those minor expenses. Whereas a person that earns only $50,000 per year, they're going to have a significant percentage of their income spent on essentials and necessities, whereas a person that earns a million dollars a year is not going to have a significant percentage. So the higher the income tends to reflect in higher savings rates. Number six is interest rates. Interestingly, the higher the interest rate environments um, means more promotion of more savings rates when compared to lower interest rate environments. And this is called substitution effect, which is an interesting concept. If you want to go and read about it, read about it. Number seven is government fiscal policy also affects savings rates. How? I found this interesting because it seems when the government spends more money and increases their deficits, people tend to save more. This is called the Ricadian equivalent. So again, an interesting subconcept, which I don't really have time to go into in this episode, but something perhaps that you can go and read about. So what are the stats in Australia when it comes to average savings rates in Australia? Now, during 2020, 30% of Australians had dipped into their savings, which is what resulted as a result of the pandemic due to an emergency loss of income from many, many Australians. So dipping into your savings is quite appropriate rather than borrowing money during those desperate times. Now, 11% in 2020 had taken on more debt and 15% of people reduced their debts, which is fantastic. And 46% of people actually saved more money than in 2019 compared to 2020, which is encouraging. And these stats were based on a survey of 2,000 people that CAN started. And on average, Australians tend to have a savings rate of about 10%. Um, and the stats are that 79% of Australians are able to save more money from their after-tax income, which is great. Um, most Australians save on average 10% of our after-tax income, which is even better. 16% of Australians are saving 20% of their after-tax income. of Australians are saving 40% of their after-tax income. And I guess people that are in the FIRE movement are probably belonging to that. Um, And the people who don't save at all, and this is where it gets a bit concerning, 
is they overspent on average of $617 per month. That is quite a lot of money to be in the negative for every single month. Um, 21% of households have less than $1,000 in savings, which is quite terrifying. 14% of households have savings of $1,000 to $5,000. 13% of households have savings of five dollars to $10,000 and 30% of households have savings of over $50,000. And I suspect a lot of them have it in their offsets account, uh, uh, which is offsetting against their uh, debt, which is their mortgage. Now, the median savings in the bank is 15,000. Men have 22,000 median savings compared to women who have a median savings of $10,000. And of course, the gender inequality of pay, savings, superannuation, et cetera, is a real concern. And it all starts with gender pay gaps um, even in countries like Australia. We do have a pay gap when it comes to the overall income uh, compared to males versus females. So it is a big issue uh, and the gap is slowly closing, but it is nowhere near close um, compared to some of the other countries. Now, that's about it to the savings rate. And we discussed some of the important stats here. So let's move on to investment returns Now, what is an investment return? Simply put, it's money made or lost on an investment during a period of time. And the returns can be dollar values or expressed as a ratio or percentage based on original investment amounts. So there are two critical elements of calculating an investment return. The first one is you've got to have your holding period. This is the period in which a person holds an investment. There is no point calculating an investment return if it doesn't exactly match the investor's holding period. Because, you know, people say, I've got 30% return in the last 12 months, but in the last 12 months, we've had a global pandemic. And if you just invested in the index funds, then you're going to get 30% as well. So, you know, you've got to have your holding period of your entire holding period, not just a select few years. And you can break up your holding periods if you want to into monthly, quarterly, yearly or more. And the other critical thing is the input data is used to measure the returns. So what are the various types of investment returns we have? So we have um, three main investment return variable types. So the first one's called a nominal return. This is the return on investment, um, which it gives before factoring expenses, taxes, fees and inflation. So let's use an example to highlight this point. Amy buys publicly traded stock worth $1,000. There are no distributions, no outlays, no expenses, and sells the stock 12 months later for $1,500. The nominal return for Amy is $500. Now, the second way of measuring investment returns is called a real return. This is when return is adjusted for changes in price due to inflation or other external factors. And this is an important concept to understand. It often is forgotten. Inflation eats up your returns over the long term. So let's use an example to highlight this point about real returns. Suppose Amy buys publicly traded stock for 1000 bucks, and the stock increases after 12 months by 10%, but inflation is also calculated at 6%, which is quite high. So bear with me here. So Amy's real return is if she sold the stock back, is 4%, less any expenses or taxes. So the real return factors in price changes due to inflation and other external factors. So it's an important concept to understand. The third type of investment return that you can use to calculate is called total returns. 
And this is when the investment increases in value, but during the time it does, it also produces distributions such as dividends, and that is an income. And I've done a detailed episode of discussing the various differences between dividends and distributions in episode 65, if you're interested. But let's use an example here to highlight this concept. That is, Amy buys a publicly traded stock for $1,000 with a dividend yield of 4%. After 12 months, the stock rises in value by 6%, and Amy's total return on that stock is 6% capital gain plus 4% dividend after that 12 months, which is a 10% total return. So Australian stocks pay higher dividend rates compared to other countries, and the total returns in Australia is something you need to consider if investing in the Australian stock market. And of course, there are other perks in the Australian stock market, such as franking credits and uh, frank dividends, etc. So those are the three main types of returns that you can possibly look into when calculating your investment returns. The number one is nominal return, number two is real return, and number three is total return. Now, what about other things like returns ratios? So it's probably important to learn about the various ratios when it comes to returns, because ratios are useful in finance because it's an easy way to see how effective your investment has been. And when it comes to returns ratios, there are three main types. The first one is return on investment. The second one is return on equity. And the third one is return on assets. And for each of these returns, there is a set time horizon based on the investment time horizon of that person. So let's go through each one in detail. So what is return on investment? ROI, which is calculated based on return, based on per dollar invested. Now, this return can be a rise in value plus dividend income when it comes to stock market investments. So let's use an example. If you invested $1,000 and if that investment rose to $1,200, then the return on investment is $200 divided by 1,000, which is 20%. So that's a pretty easy calculation to do. Now, the second ratio that you probably should be aware of is called return on equity, which is ROE, and this is based on net income divided by average shareholders' equity. So let's use an example. If you have a company that makes a million dollars in profit in 12 months, and during that time frame, the average equity capital for that company was $10 million, the return on equity is calculated as 1 million divided by 10 million, which is 10%. So the ROE is 10%. So that's an important ratio that you probably want to look into when looking at your investment returns. And the third one is called return on assets or ROA. And this is based on net income derived by the, uh, sorry, divided by the average assets for the company. So let's use an example to highlight this concept. And that is if you have a company whose assets are $100,000 and it generates a net income of $5,000, then the return on assets is $5,000 divided by $100,000, which is 5%. So the ROA in this particular example is 5%. Now, the critical thing about calculating investment returns is you've got to understand the various metrics used because when you're about to invest in something, the person that's selling you that investment is going to use whatever metric is going to sound good and look good. And without you understanding the various metrics, it's very difficult for you to compare one investment versus another. The most common metric used um, in investments is called return uh, on investment, and that is just how much returns you're getting per dollar invested into a particular investment, such as a company stock or a business. 
Now that we've learned about the savings rate and investment returns and its various subtopics, which is more important? Is savings rate more important than investment returns or vice versa? I've already answered this question earlier in the podcast, but let's use an example to really highlight this point. Let's assume there are two brothers, Tom and Jerry. Tom starts saving $1,000 and invests it aggressively every month and achieves a return of 12% per annum return. His expense ratio is 0.1%, and he does this consistently for 30 years. How much money does Tom end up with? Well, he'll have about $3.014 million, which is pretty good. Now, Jerry, on the other hand, his brother, saves $2,000, so he saves double the amount, and invest it normally, so not aggressive or anything, you just invest it normally every month, and achieves a return of only 9%. His expense ratio is still the same at 0.1%, and he too does this for 30 years. How much money does Jerry end up with? Well, it turns out that Jerry ends up with 3.36 million. In other words, he ends up with more money than Tom. The fact of the matter is, Tom is unlikely to achieve 12% return every single year consistently for 30 years. But we're going to give him that because let's assume that Tom is fantastic at investing and he does it aggressively and he does it really well over 30 years. So in this particular case, despite Jerry getting a 3% lesser return per annum and keeping all expenses the same, same time period, but he has double the savings rate. So rather than $1,000 a month, he invests $2,000 a month. Jerry still beats his brother, who saved less, but invested more aggressively. So, savings rate almost always trumps investment returns. In fact, if Tom was more aggressive and saved $3,000 per month, um, sorry, not Tom, Jerry, the brother that's already beaten Tom, was more aggressive and saved $3,000 per month, he ends up with $5 million dollars rather than the $3 million that Tom ends up with. So Jerry still has more money if he just saved more money and invested it. In fact, even if Jerry's returns was not 9%, even if it was just 6.5%, so almost half the return of Tom, um, and he saved $3,000 and invested it every month, he still beats Tom hands down. So what's the moral here? The moral here is quite clear. That is, savings rate is far more important than investment returns. And I get this question a lot. What should I invest in to get the most returns? My answer is, you've got to focus on your income. You've got to maximize it. And you've got to save it as much as possible. Investment returns and its benefits happens once you've achieved some sort of wealth. So, I reflect on my own experience of my 70% plus savings rate, very similar to Dr. P, who asked me that question uh, some weeks ago now. And the money that I saved up in my 20s, late 20s and early 30s, saving up in excess of 70% of my income and really plowing it into the stock market back then, was over sort of, you know, seven to 10 years ago now. That is what's proved very fruitful Because remember, the 70% of savings rate that I've invested keeps compounding over the next 30 years. So even though I probably make more money now than I ever have before, the fact that I saved so much money in my 20s and early 30s 
is what has proved fruitful when it comes to my investment returns. Because had I not done that early in my career, then I would have struggled in terms of trying to meet those uh, uh, returns now because I'm never going to achieve, you know, 12, 15% per annum return. So, you know, again, I want to highlight this point again before I finish this episode, and that is your savings rate is something you can directly control. And you can directly control your income. You can directly control how much you spend. You can directly control what your marginal propensity to save is. And of course, you can control your fees as well to some extent. But you can't control your investment returns. It is somewhat out of your control. So I hope this clarifies and solidifies the answer to the age-old question of what matters more, investment returns or investment return? Uh, sorry, savings rates or investment returns? And I would take savings rate any day of the week. So that's about it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using. or leave a five-star review on all of the platforms, even better. And please leave a positive review. And in that theme, here is a review I found on Apple Podcast from Luha87, who has a rocket emoji, uh, who writes, My goal in 2021 was to improve my financial literacy, and it's been truly eye-opening to listen to this podcast. Just by listening to a few episodes of Dev Raga's Personal Finance, I have more than surpassed what I hope to achieve this year. Financial literacy cannot be underestimated, and this is a wonderful gift that you've bestowed upon us. So thank you very much for that lovely, lovely comment, Luha87. Um, and please, if you have any more comments or ratings, please do so online. Please give me a five-star rating. The more ratings, the more reviews you leave, the more people get access to this podcast, which is, of course, free. So please keep those ratings and reviews coming. Remember to like Devrag, our Facebook page. Shout out to questions, comments, or topic suggestions. Share this channel with family and friends. I'm available on all major pl- uh, podcasting platforms. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money because you're the most important person in your life. And learn about savings rates and investment returns, those calculations, the types of ratios that we talked about. And remember, your savings rate almost always trumps investment returns. This is Devraga Personal Finance Episode 116. And as always, please make sure you stay safe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 